What's up, everybody? You're listening to NoCo Cinema here on WGM+. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago and all around the world. I'm Tom Hush. And I'm Connor Cornelius. And uh, we're so glad to be back with you for another week of NoCo Cinema. A little bit later on in our feature presentation segment, we talk to Raul Benitez and Nando Espinoza, two film programmers for Comfort Film at Comfort Station, which is located in Logan Square. It's a fantastic screening series that goes for about eight to ten months out of the year, where every week they show a movie for free over at Comfort Station. Uh, they've been recently featured on the New City's Film 50, a list of the most influential people in film in the city of Chicago. So we talked to them a little bit about what Comfort Film is all about, the history of Comfort Station, and all that good stuff, how they choose the films. Uh, and then a little bit later on in our after credits, we talk a little bit about Blade Runner 2049 and the Rotten Tomatoes effect, something that we've touched on before, but we want to revisit it again. But for right now, we want to get into probably the biggest news story of the year so far for film. Harvey Weinstein, uh, co-founder of the Weinstein Company, former executive at uh, Miramax, one of the biggest figures in film, has now been suspended from the Weinstein Company indefinitely following uh, some pretty serious allegations of sexual harassment within the company dating about uh, 30 years or so time span. And this um, comes from a New York Times article which was released on Thursday. Correct. And this whole response to this thing has sort of just exploded in the last week. Yes. Uh, a lot of tweets, a lot of reactions by members of the fil- film community who have seen this article and are kind of chiming in a little bit on their own personal experiences with Mr. Weinstein. Uh, it's been a huge, huge thing uh, being covered all over the place. Connor, can you give us a little bit of a timeline of how this story has started to break into the actual mainstream? Right. So on Monday and, or Tuesday, um, the new New York Times hinted that they had sort of a bombshell article brewing concerning Harvey Weinstein, and Harvey Weinstein immediately lawyered up, and then he also issued a public statement that said that the story sounded so good that he wanted to buy the movie rights to it and begin production immediately, which is really just a callous response to the, especially in light of the allegations that are presented in the New York Times article. Yeah, because really, that's the is that really the best way to respond to allegations of sexual harassment with arrogance and... And, and this sort of flippant attitude, just touting his his influence. Christ, and, yeah, it's <laughs> it's pretty much insanity. I, it's burgeoning on sociopathic. Yes. So a little bit of a timeline for this: the decades or the uh, allegations have gone back about three decades, but uh, perhaps the most. Uh, jarring one, the most emblematic one, because there is definitely a common thread with all of the stories that these women have come forward with. It, so about two decades ago, Harvey Weinstein invited Ashley Judd, uh, an actress who was filming Kiss the Girls at the time, to his hotel for a meeting. And obviously, she was busy, but she thought it was too important an opportunity to pass up. And then when she got there, an attendant at the hotel told her that he wanted to meet her in his private room. And when he finally met her, he was in his bathrobe began to ask her if she would give him a massage and when she said no he 
in his mind apparently downgraded it to asking for a shoulder rub and then she said no and then he said would you like to watch me shower and she kept saying no and he kept persisting with his advances and this is really uh, emblematic like I said of the sort of stories that the women have been telling over the last 30 years it's that common thread of he invites them to a private meeting which is supposedly about business they wind up in a situation where he is asking for massages back rubs uh having them watch him shower and that's the common thread with all of this under the guise and and in some cases a verbal promise that he will further their careers if they do the things that he is asking him to do and if you think that this is just something that happened decades ago that is not the case in 2014 he invited emily nestor to his to the same hotel that he invited ashley judd said he would boost her career if she accepted his sexual advances in 2015, he had another woman give him a massage while he was naked under the pretense that he could further her career. And per this New York Times article, Harvey Weinstein has been reaching settlements with women to keep them from disclosing his improprieties for at least three decades. There are many women, as reported in that article, that are under non-disclosure agreements as a result of these settlements, which is harrowing, really, because that means that not only is he giving, he is giving them hush money. He is saying, take this money, but you don't get to say a goddamn word. And um, if that isn't an uh, a symbol of male power in Hollywood, I really don't know what is. And there are plenty of similar stories in the news, especially over the last several months. You know, you've got the Fox newscasters that are doling out millions of dollars in settlement for their indiscretions. But Weinstein reportedly has given out less than $100,000 for the silence of these women that he has harassed and abused, which is pretty much unconscionable obviously the the actions themselves are unconscionable but the fact that he seems to be getting away with kind of pennies on the dollar to his peers that are committing the same sort of atrocities it's unconscionable it's unbelievable let's look at the uh, the legal team that he's assembled here he had hired lisa bloom who is a christ sort of a crisis counselor and she's worked with people like uh, kathy griffin most recently with uh, the situation with her and donald trump the severed head mm-hmm. incident um she has been apparently working with him for about a year uh on you know how to change his ways and attitudes around women which is kind of screwed up that if you have to literally hire someone to teach you how to work with women like how is that a a thing like you need that kind of exactly and yeah she said that part of their coaching session he had to tell she had to tell harvey weinstein that his influence in the industry and the fact that he is such a powerful figure is intimidating to people and it seemed as though he didn't understand that already as if he wasn't using that to sort of to facilitate his predatory you know actions actions behaviors exactly and uh so lisa bloom is still with him at this point helping him with the crisis management of these allegations uh he also hired charles harder who is the lawyer who repped hulk hogan in the case against gawker Mm -hmm. now um which destroyed the company absolutely yeah gawker media is gone um now this case in particular with Hulk Hogan has been looked at in retrospect as a very dangerous moment in 
entertainment journalism because it kind of dis- said to everybody that the journalists are don't get to decide what is of public note. Um it's it's that one was difficult for me for Hulk Hogan, but I, you know I really didn't want to see Gawker go away because they were willing to take risks and burn some bridges in order to report on certain things, and I don't like that this case is basically now being used as precedent to say the New York Times cannot report on uh, allegations against Harvey Weinstein simply because it reduces his stature in the public eye. Uh, He is suing the New York Times, correct? To the tune of $50 million for reckless reporting. And which... Is really sad. The The author of the article, or one of the authors of the article, Jody Cantor, is a well-known investigative journalist. She has been spending a lot of time working on this article. Uh, the AV Club, specifically Katie Reif, fantastic writer at the AV Club, uh, reported that uh, she that Cantor had been digging through some of the human resources records uh, of the Weinstein Company to find these incidents. This is well-reported journalism. The New York Times is not to be taken lightly. These pe- these journalists are doing their job. They found a story, and it's their job to report on it, whether or not it, you know, potentially downgrades or flat out ends the career of a major Hollywood figure. And it is also worth noting that it's not just a Times article uh, that he was lawyering up for, Mr. Weinstein. Uh, He was also lawyering up for a uh, supposedly forthcoming New Yorker article written by Ronan Farrow, who is the son of Mia Farrow and Woody Allen, former MSNBC host. And, uh, you know, knowing the family history between... Uh, Mia Farrow, Woody Allen, uh, Woody Allen, I mean, Ronan Farrow, his dad is married (laughs) to his stepsister. Like, he definitely knows where this goes, you know, in terms of Hollywood influence. And um, so we have not seen anything from The New Yorker, from Ronan Farrow. That's just kind of what was uh, reported on when um, people found out that this Times article was going to happen. Uh, it is also worth noting that there's been plenty more developments, including Weinstein being suspended from the company by the board of the Weinstein company. Uh, a third of the board of the Weinstein company has, has resigned. now resigned. Yes. A third of them. So w- I guess a big question is... It's hard to say that these allegations are baseless. Yeah, it's absolutely... Like, we're talking about well-known actresses such as Ashley Judd such as Rose McGowan mm-hmm. um there ha- it's 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 horrifying and they've been reacting on Twitter as well um i believe it was Amber Tamblin that sent out a tweet that said remember like she said i have this mantra women have nothing to gain from coming forward but everything to lose And I think that's really important to keep in our heads is that these women are not coming out. They don't they're not going to like they have nothing to gain from telling people that Weinstein sexually harassed them, sexually assaulted them, whatever the allegations are. They need to this needs to happen. You can't have someone in power in Hollywood continuing to do this over and over and over again, especially in light of uh, what was happening with Harry Knowles and Devin Faraci over with the the Alamo Drafthouse and Fantastic Fest. Um, It's also recently come out that there are allegations against the creator of the the very popular Honest Trailers series on YouTube, an Emmy-winning short. 
and that guy that fella has been suspended as of now so and harvey has been doing this for decades across the entire world mm -hmm. and the people there's the common narrative you know he's been targeting women typically in their mid-20s they're aspiring actresses and it's important that we talk about this because it's important that people understand that that especially young people trying to make it in the industry, they need to know that this is not okay, that this is not the way that the industry is run, that the, the this is not the way that the industry should be run, and we need to be able to hold the executives and the industry on the whole to a higher standard than that. Yeah. It's almost like something it's, – it's one of those things. I think it's funny that he said, the story sounds so good, I want to buy the movie rights. Well, I mean, this is almost like – it sounds like a movie. Like, there's a – you know, there there is this common – somewhat darkly comic narrative that like in order to get ahead in Hollywood, you have to sleep with people. And it's, uh, I think it's not funny. It's like, this is really happening to people for every woman that said no at the Weinstein company. Think of all the women who felt so pressured that they went through with it and they had to get paid, you know, they got paid hush money or they had their, we don't, we, I don't want to speculate too much, but, like, we don't know how, exactly how many women have been sexually harassed by Harvey Weinstein. Right. And this article came out on Thursday, and since then, eight more people have come forward. Uh, a ninth, actually, recently, who was a, a TV reporter that said that he literally masturbated in front of her at one of those private hotel meetings. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And it's uh, despicable. Yeah. And um, we need to keep an eye on this in film communities everywhere. Um you know, I, I like to believe that the film community can be a safe place for people to be expressive and to enjoy something that's very personal to them. And um, I know you and I are massive film fans. It's part of our identity Absolutely. is being a fan of cinema. And um, that needs to go for everybody. That needs to go for women. That needs to go for people of color. There needs to be some sort of accountability here and i mean we we don't mean to harp too much on something we talked about last week we already talked about uh the situation with harry knowles and uh devin farachi but obviously but, this is happening at every scale of the industry and yeah. as uh to borrow a point from from last week it's important that we talk about it because that's how change happens yeah we need to make this real. We need to make this tangible for people to know that these things are happening and something needs to be done about it. So I'm happy that uh, Harvey Weinstein has been suspended from his company. I um, I think the third of the board resigning was probably a smart thing to do. Like yeah. you can't be a, you can't be near this. No. Um, I don't know what the future of the Weinstein company is because let's be honest for. All the shitty things that Harvey Weinstein has done. He's, he's also had a hand in some of the biggest movies of the last, like, 20 or so years. Yeah. Extremely talented uh, film executive. He's got, like, Pulp Fiction in his belt. You know, he's, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Yep. Steven Soderbergh's debut. He's um, no stranger to taking small indie films and blowing them up into, you know, big Hollywood spectacles like he's, the King's Speech. Yeah, he's got... He has Oscars under his belt. So maybe it just speaks to how high profile this goes. We're talking about single-handedly one of the most influential people in Hollywood using people underneath him, using his position of power to get what he wants. And uh, we just uh, we can't take it anymore. I'm, I'm done with it. I don't want to hear any more of this. I hope he stays out of the industry. Because he's had a – and something to mention is that in the article, 
he gave a statement saying that I've he's basically admitted to doing bad things. Yeah, and he knows that he's he's affected people's lives in wholly negative ways. Which is funny that he's now suing the Times for you know reckless reporting, basically. When because he's like, oh, I did lots of bad things, but not these specific. But I've got money, so fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> oh. We here at NoCo Cinema take a staunch stand against any sort of sexual harassment, sexual assault, or any sort of sex crimes, any sort of discrimination. And I just want our listeners to know that. Um, and we, we, I want them to know that we're going to continue to follow stories like this. We're not going to let this go. So be prepared to hear more in the future from hopefully people who are more expert than us about this. We're merely reacting at this point. Uh, we're trying to give you an overview of what's happening. If you don't already know, if you already know, then you know the seriousness of, uh, of these allegations. So um, Let's believe survivors. Let's believe these accusations and take them seriously as possible. Right. So let's move on to lighter things breath, yeah. into our feature presentation segment. Coming up next, we're talking to Raul Benitez and Nando Espinoza about comfort film, a place where people can be positive and enjoy film for free and be part of a really great community. Uh, that's coming up next here on No Coast Cinema. Listening to NoCo Cinema here on WGM Plus. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago and all around the world. I am Tom Hush. And I'm Connor Cornelius. And uh, we're so excited to have uh, two fantastic guests here for our feature presentation segment. It's Raul Benitez and Nando Espinoza. They're here from Comfort Film, which is a screening series that takes place at Comfort Station in Logan Square, where they're screening fantastic films for everybody for free. Welcome so much to the program, uh, Raul and Nando. Uh, thank you for having us. Uh, after a long time of trying to meet up, we, yeah. finally, we finally made it. <laughs> yeah, there was a, you reached out to us a long time ago, and we were like, oh, this is the greatest idea. I love this. Let's get them in. And uh, what is it, f- maybe like four months later, yeah, we're finally like in the studio. It was a while. <laughs> it had yeah. to be a thing of the fall. It couldn't be a thing of the summer. Yeah. yeah. There we go. Well, now that it's fall, we have got you in the studio. Uh, let's start out with, um, in your own words, can you tell us what Comfort Film is? How did it start, and what is the goal of Comfort Film? Uh, okay. Uh, well, first, I'll start with the space that we're in. Um, so we're at Comfort Station, which is kind of like a historic landmark in the middle of Logan Square. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but it's like that little house mm-hmm. on an island and like all the traffic goes around it. It's right next to the like the mon- obelisk. Yeah, kind of. by the, the monument mm-hmm. of the ego. Um, and that place was built in the 20s as a shelter for commuters, uh, mostly for like commuters that used to go on the, the trolley bus on Milwaukee, or they would wait for the the, the L's. The L used to end at the Logan Auditorium mm-hmm. when it was elevated before they moved it underground in the 60s. So it was used for, for that, for a shelter, basically for a comfort station. And then um, the, it, after the whole like dismantling of that, the trolley system, they pretty much closed the building down and 
it was unused for like 40, 40 years or so. It was just used as storage for like lawn equipment. And there are several yeah. buildings actually that ran down up and down Milwaukee Avenue, but that's the only one. There's only two remaining uh, because all the other ones were basically torn down by the city. Um, which the Longscript Preservation, who is who leases the building from the city, pretty much had the idea of like, well, this is a historic building. Th- you know, th- there's no longer any of those around in the city except for another one in Oak Park that is all boarded up. So this one is it's the one that remains in what used to be a, a series of them just spread across the city, not just uh, Milwaukee and Logan Square. Well, I've got to say this is a little surreal for me because I used to live right there. I used to live at the corner of Wrightwood and Spalding, and I would always walk by that little house, and I would sometimes I would even see that they were that there were movies being projected onto a screen in there and there was you know an audience and everything and i always wanted to know like how is that how do you get an invitation to that how do you get involved in that so um for our for our listeners how can people uh come and see the the movies that you guys are screening because you guys have a lot going on this month yeah um it's funny because a lot i and i run into this all the time i was at a party last night for a film opening for a festival that we're hosting uh and I had somebody, several people tell me, like, I never knew the place was open, and I've been living here forever. And um, and it's like, it, and it, the, the space is not, like, it's open to the public. Like, all the all the events are open. Our screenings are open to the public. They're free. Um, and, they're, you know, we have three core programs that cover station, the f- art, the music, and the film. And the art is throughout the month. And then the, the film, which is us, is on Wednesday nights, every Wednesday night all the way to December. So we start like April all the way to December. Wow! And then, um, and then we have music on Thursdays. So it's open and free for everybody. Anybody can come in. You know, uh, it's a great spot because people walk by and they look through the window and they see stuff going on and they just come in randomly, and, yeah. and they sit down. Like that happened last night or Wednesday night when we had a film, where so, there were some people that looked looked through the window and saw something was happening. They came inside and they sat down and watched the movie. Yeah. So. Uh, it's, our space is very fluid like that. Like people come in and, you know, just out of the blue or, and we get like you, you're like, I've been living here forever and yeah. I've never been in here. <laughs> I mean, but yeah, for audiences to, to answer your question, how they can get, you know, more information on that. We, uh, as Comfort Station, have a profile on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, and also us, uh, too, as uh, Comfort Film, have our own profile. So, you know, people can just, you know, a, a quick Google search, Facebook search, you can find Comfort Film or Comfort Station, Logan Square, and people can subscribe to the events. We have a really cool thing going on throughout uh, the month, which is going to be uh, horror films. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into that. But, yeah, if, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll go back at the end, too. But, yeah, Comfort Station, Logan Square, and Comfort Film have their own profiles. People can just find that, subscribe to the events. And uh, we also have a newsletter. So you can get a newsletter uh, for Comfort Film every month that highlights what we're going to have throughout that month. And Comfort Station sends one out every week, which, you know, highlights other things that we have going on. But uh, really, the, the films are, are, you know, the coolest thing we have in there. Yeah. <laughs> well, very. Uh, that's, uh, I mean, my thing is film. If I'm going to be going to Comfort Station, it would primarily be for the film. But it's great to know that they have a lot of arts programming. Um, so both of you are the film programmers for Comfort Film. I want to ask, what is the process you guys go through when choosing the films you're going to show? I know that for October, you've got the horror selection going on. But throughout your entire filming screening season how do you decide between the two of you this is the movie we're going to show we usually actually start actually we're starting to plan now for next year already wow um and part of the reason is we have limited dates obviously we only can do wednesdays and then once in a while we have like dates other than wednesday but 
Um, we get a lot of pro- we have a proposal form, so people fill that out. We get proposals through that way. A lot of it is just like chit chatting with other, f- you know, going to other events and talking to filmmakers, film programmers, and, f- and other film programmers and film artists. Um, you know, we get a lot of films through that way. Just just you know, just from smooching with other people, and uh, and then we do partnerships. So, for example, the the films that we're showing this month for for Halloween, it's a partnership with uh, Paul Furtag, who's a reviewer at DailyGrindhouse dot com, and um, and they're also a sponsor of the the, the films. Um, and that's an extension of a series we have at the so every last Wednesday of the month, we show films that were released on VHS, but not on DVD or shown theatrically. And Paul Furtag, he curates those for us, and he gets the projection rights. Um, and that, that separates us a little bit from other series around the city where we actually try to do the right thing and get projection rights for most of the films we show, either either from the filmmakers themselves or from distributors. Um, and we've been very lucky that because we're an art space and we're free and we're public, we usually get free projection rights. Really? Um, so, like, because you are doing almost like – it's almost like a community sort of – or a community building yeah, sort of it thing. it is. And we, and we, we host community – other community organizations use our space to to do stuff right. meetings or whatever. So, yeah, we're a community space as well as an art space. So, um, yeah, so we're you know we in our programming part we try to we get stuff with partnerships. Uh, you know, a lot of it, like I said, is smooching. We get some film proposals. People email us randomly, you know, or they meet us at an, at another screening. We get a lot of movies through that way, mm-hmm. where where filmmakers or somebody comes up to us and says, hey. Uh, you know, we love what you're doing. We want to be part of it. We have a film. But, uh, so if we could fit them in, and if it feels right, we do. Um, and we, over the years, we've been very lucky in finding stuff. So we haven't had too much of a problem in the past two years of filling up the dates yeah. uh, because we got a lot of people coming in. And our programming is very eclectic and diverse. We One of the things that I guess we always discuss, Rome and myself, is that we try not to be elitist in the kind of work that we show. Because there's an idea that, you know, somehow the stuff that is shown in an art gallery uh, has to be, like, very highbrow, kind of like art, uh, abstract, experimental. We have shown abstract. We have shown surreal. We have shown experimental film. But, you know, something like, hey, we're going to show a movie from the 1980s that's in VHS that it was really bad, that it never actually, you know, made it past <laughs> the home video market. That We also enjoy the, the diversity on that programming. So we, we try not to be... Um, kind of like restricted onto what we uh, show. Not to say that we just show whatever. You know, we we usually we we want people to know that they they, they can know the space as opposed to just like programming without first meeting the programmer or the curator. Um, so yeah, that's that's what makes our programming so so cool, and that's why people are not afraid to like approach uh, as opposed to like other places that have like a very. I don't want to say high standards because I think we have high standards, but they're they're very selective on their on their work that that they show or who they show. Yeah, and I think that's important to be a space that's open and not, you know, because let's face it, like people are kind of afraid of going to. They see an art gallery and they already think like artsy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They're it's like, going to be all David Lynch. Yeah, and it's, yeah, and it's going <laughs> to be like we're, you know, they're kind of scared of that art and uh, and we try to be broad based in our programming because we're an open space and we're free and. That reflects in our audience. Like our audience is different all the time. We don't, you know, we don't have like a steady people that come all the time to everything. We have a different audience all the time, yeah. and and, and that re, that's a reflection of how we're programming and doing partnerships, um, and, and that's important. 
Absolutely. It seems like it's a very community-driven uh, event. And uh, I did want to ask, so you guys are the programmers. Obviously, you do bring in some other people with partnerships for curation. Um, I did want to ask about the types of films that you're showing uh, every month. It sounds like you guys are active, what, eight months out of the year, and you guys are screening at least once a week. Yeah, sometimes um, up to ten months because we start okay. sometimes as early as March and go all the way to, like, December. Um yeah, because we started, I think, this year, like, late March. Yeah, we but, have people already, like, saying, hey, can we show something in March? Because we take a break during the winter. Yeah. Conversation does. We take mm-hmm. a, we, we all take a break from January to, to March, and then we restart in April. So, But the past couple of years, we've said something, like, at the end of March. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, what was your question again? Yeah, I, did, I didn't <laughs> actually ask it, but thank you, Nando, for, for clearing that up. Um um, I did want to ask, do you guys tie it to like a thematic, uh, do you tie your curation to like a thematic thing or do you just no, do not, it every month? No, or? not not really. Um, the only thing, we have like a regular, the, the VHS thing's a regular series. Mm-hmm. Um, and But the, most of the dates are kind of like, it's, the program is different. Like, for example, um, the 13th, we're, we're hosting the Ethno- Chicago Ethnographic Film Festival. So we're a venue for them this year. We're also a venue for the Twisted Oyster Film Festival. Um, it's totally two diff- totally different things. And that'll be at Comfort Station? That's at Comfort Station, okay. yes. And um, Yeah, Ethnographic Voices, uh, Ethnographic Collected Voices is the third thing, which is coming up uh, this, this October Friday. 13th. Yeah. It, um, so it's di- obviously different than what our, our, what our horror films are, obviously. Mm-hmm. Then, like, last month, the first two weeks of last month, we had... We were celebrating El Santo's 100th anniversary birthday. So we showed two El Santo films the first mm-hmm. two Wednesdays of the month. Um, so um, in that way, it's kind of thematic. Yeah, but, sure. but normally it's not. Yeah. Normally it's kind of like all over the place. Like we might have an experimental series uh, one one Wednesday. We might have something else another Wednesday. The only thing that we have done that is uh, sort of thematic where um, – where it's more than just film program, but also kind of like booking bands. We do this thing on the summer that is very popular. We show silent films with live music. Uh, so we show films from the silent era of, you know, 19-teens, 1920s. Uh, and we pair local bands or bands based in the city. Really? And they create, yeah, and they create a, a score just for that one night. Sometimes it's worked out that, you know, they... they not only put so much effort, but people want to see more of it, that they do it um, more than once. And, you know, we hosted, we have been there for five years. And in that time, we have hosted over, we have brought over 20 bands to play uh, silent uh, music for a silent film. And that's something that, that no other places it does on, we do that for a whole month, by yeah. the way. So it's like four Wednesdays, you come in and every Wednesday we're going to show a silent film and there's going to be a band playing live music and it's going to be free and it's going to be outdoors. That's the thing that we have thematic, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's true. Com- I, I wanted to ask about the this idea of showing the films outside and free and having this big community engagement. I feel like this really eschews the current problem in filmmaking, which is um, price. Price is putting a, po- a lot of people out of going out to see the movies. Um, mm-hmm. You know, people can just stay home and watch Netflix for nine ninety nine a month, as opposed to sp- spending you know uh, like thirty bucks just on maybe a ticket and movie, sometimes more. And this idea of the community bringing people together to enjoy film in a much more, I don't know, uh, interesting way, like. Do you feel that comfort film is a pushback against this sterilized idea of film of uh, viewing a film? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think I think uh, the, the outdoor thing with the silent films 
um, we feel that it's a, it's definitely a community event where like everybody from the neighborhood comes, you know, and they like lay out on the lawn. And um, I think putting the music aspect to it, live music aspect to it, really makes it more compelling for people to come out and see it mm-hmm. because it's like a one time event, and you're not going to see it anywhere else. And a lot of these bands, a lot of these people never heard of. Because we try to be like, as eclectic with the be- choosing of the bands as possible. Because mm-hmm. I mean, we've had from like a chamber orchestra to a punk band one year do <laughs> do a score. I did want to ask how you guys choose the bands for that because that sounds like a Herculean task. It, actually, a uh, it's gotten band. better over the years because we the first the first friends. time, yeah. I mean, the first time we did it, we kind of has we started searching for bands. Mm-hmm. But now that the word's gone out a little bit, we've had people come to us now and say, "I want to do this." And a lot of pan, a lot of bands do want to do this because it's a unique opportunity to score a film, and it's not an opportunity that a band gets all the time, especially a band like a punk band, right. like which was t- Terror. Terror, shout out because they're my boys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which, by the way, was the longest set they had to play. It's a punk band. They usually play like thirty minutes, and they're you know yeah, they picked yeah. up forty five minute movie, Six, like and, sixty minutes or sixty minutes, which, and, it, yeah. and they did a great job because I was like. Man, how's it, how are they going to do this? Did they change right. their style at all? Or no, they actually had a great theme. They had like an underlying yeah. theme to all the, the the score of the music that they did. They, they pick a, a silent uh, a silent action film, which was also directed by a woman. Which I think was the first thing we were showing a silent film directed by a woman. Uh, and because the film had a bunch of like car chases, and it was this really wild movie out in the desert where like this whole thing revolves around how uh, uh, I think the girl gets on the car to save her fiance or something like that. So they they picked a movie that kind of had that punk attitude and they just adapted. Some of their songs actually were adapted to play a little bit longer. But they also created uh, the uh, bassist who uh, I was talking to. He was like, "No, we're we're creating some uh, heroic music for this." Yeah, it was it was a movie uh, called Something New. Yeah, something oh. new, um, which talked about the the cars at the point when you know cars were being mass produced. Oh, okay, and, yeah, yeah, um, it's great. It's a great movie, and they did a great score. And the good thing, the great thing about the silent film series that we do is, you don't know what you're going to get. Like you, you're like we don't know what the score is going to be like until that night. Yeah, and um, we've been very lucky. We've gotten some amazing artists. Um, this actually this year, this past summer. We had two extra silent film screenings. One of them was at the Hyde Park Art Center. Um, and we had uh, Ben Lamar Gray, who's like a great, I don't know if you ever heard of him. He's like a really great uh, a trumpetist and okay. horn player. And their, that score was the, the one they did was with. Within uh, Our Gates? Yeah, within our, the movie was Within Our Gates, which is an African American silent film. And the score they did was amazing. Amazing. And he was doing the sound effects with his horn. Like, so. It so was, like he's he's playing the score and then also when something happens he's he's doing mimicking. the sound effect of wow, whatever's man. happening. It was amazing. <laughs> That's a tall order. And and we're very lucky cuz a lot of these I mean what we do is you know we get we're donation based so we give uh whatever donations we get that night we give it all to the artists wow. to the musicians um because they put a lot of work some some of them take it really serious and work on it for months. Mm-hmm. Um we also had this uh beautiful score done for uh called Theodore Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc, which was made by uh, this really cool artist called Alexa Gray and uh, Maya Luz. They created this beautiful uh, electronic uh, operatic score for this very dense film about like the, the trail of Joan of Arc. Uh, and another thing that, that uh, should be highlighted is that we don't assign the films to the bands. We actually give the bands a list that has the films 
uh, that we suggest you know could be uh, a film that they could make and then they find the film that best adapts to their music that's why you know something like Terror picks an action film something like Alexa Gray uh, who they're classically trained in opera choose a more uh, operatic uh, dramatic film and that's something really cool because for, for a lot of these bands and musicians it's the first time they're actually interacting with like visual images, uh, which is something that, which again you know kind of transcends just like oh we're just gonna show a movie. Mm-hmm. For them, it does this really cool thing which brings collaborations. Like we collaborate with the bands or with other uh, programmers, they get to like bring people they never worked with before, so that they can create just for that one night that a specific score, which is really a, a cool thing to have all together. Yeah. That's, that's so, I mean, that, energy. that's, yeah, then that series is really popular for, for us, and it was especially popular for us this year. We were getting uh, audiences over 100 people on our little tiny lawn. So, wow. um, we've been very lucky with that series. Um, and we show other films on the lawn. Earlier this year, we showed the WNUF Halloween special, which I don't know if you guys ever seen that. No. Where they, <laughs> they, it's like a found footage film where somebody found a videotape and it was somebody recorded a TV special during Halloween in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And the and it, it comes with like the commercials of the era and the weird newscasts of during Halloween. And they, they do a special broadcast where they go into this house where somebody got murdered and they bring like paranormal investigators, uh, investigators yeah. who have a cat. <laughs> that has like that could uh, that could you know feel paranormal presences, um, and uh, so we do stuff like that on yeah. outdoors too, and we also show like classic films. We showed His Girl Friday one year, which oh, is yeah. on the public Power domain. Dogs. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that must make it a lot easier if you can get those films that are in the public domain. Yeah, I mean, we do. We usually, we don't do that as much as we used to because mm-hmm. uh, we ha- we get more original stuff now. Um, yeah, but if we have a you know a gap in the programming, we tr- we throw something in like that. With the, um, I want to say if, if uh, our listeners have not read the New City Film Fifty yet, you guys were both chosen for the New City Film Fifty, and this is the second time, I believe, correct? Yeah. Well, um, first of all, congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, and what is the New City Film Fifty? Uh, the New City Film Fifty. That's the uh, magazine New City. Uh, they every year they choose the fifty most influential or fifty people in Chicago that are influencing film in uh, in fantastic ways. And naturally, Comfort Film is going to show up on that because you guys are doing this great film series. Uh, I, I guess it might be a little bit of a standard question, but how did it feel to get on there again? Is- yeah, um, we. We don't expect to get on any. We don't expect to get any accolades. To be honest, like mm-hmm. it's always a surprise to us that we get you know some kind of accolade. Um, the the great thing about that list is that it's you're voted by it's voted by the peers, your peers in the in the in the scene. So it's it's uh, your peers are the ones that are paying attention to you. Yeah, and so that's a great thing when our peers are saying you know we think that comfort film is doing good stuff. And yeah. also Ray Pride, who you know has the uh, Herculean task of just like putting together all those, uh, you know, that's fifty, but he still has like over I don't know two hundred people to like you know choose from. Mm-hmm. Some of them friends that he has to go and like create a list that highlights people who are producers, you know, working with budgets for films and television, um, people who are doing things like archives, uh, people who are doing things like. Uh, screening films at something like the Gene Siskel or the Music Books, and then you know there's us who are like community-based uh, 
and yeah it's cool because we we get nominated and in this year role was also asked to nominate someone else so another film series that kind of does the same thing that we do uh he was able to bring down that list um but yeah i mean it's a good it's it's a great feeling because uh it shows that you know in the five years that we've been people have recognized our work often um, some of the people in that list are friends because we either go to their film series or we have been able to collaborate with them so they have brought films uh mm -hmm. with us so you know that's that's something that's uh for us is like very satisfying to just like see this community like recognize each other giving each other uh giving each other a, a pat on the shoulder And both of you have been very involved in the film community for a long time here in Chicago. I know, Raul, you've got a laundry list of different festivals and uh, groups that you've worked with doing programming. Nando, same. You've been um, working in film here in Chicago for a while. What is it about the Chicago film community that is different from somewhere like L.A. or New York? I think there's a, and I've heard this from other artists, like here in Chicago, like on the, there's a lot of support between not only you know just like filmmakers but not only among filmmakers but like uh spaces mm -hmm. that host films um and you know we like well we sometimes we get films that we can't host so i you know i i, I, t I email other spaces like hey i got this person was looking for a place to show maybe you guys could show it and they do the same thing they send us some stuff um and you know then over the years there's been more and more spaces showing film Um, but the way we look at it is uh, there's enough film for everybody in the city to show. The city's big enough, you know, and everybody has their own audiences. Like, I also program at the Nightingale Theater in Noble Square, and they have their own particular audience, and it doesn't doesn't mesh with our audience. It's just – so there's enough for everyone, and, um, you know, there's a there's a, the micro, micro Cinema and Pilsen now Film Front. Um, they do their own thing where they, they do more, like, discussion-based Like a, uh, like a screening, yeah, like a like a cinema club. Okay, so everybody kind of does different things. It's enough for everyone. To, all of us. I mean, and you guys, you know, you guys know John Davies. Yeah, yeah. And he's got his his thing in the same neighborhood as we do. <laughs> so he, I mean, he's got his own audience and he does his own thing. So you know, we're, uh, you know, we're we're all in in some basic level we're collaborating. Um, and part of that is that me and Nando host a uh, film program. It's potluck. Uh, independent film programs that we do every season and um, we invite uh, most of the film programmers you know to come and meet and chat and we feel that it's important for all of us to kind of know each other and that way we could share resources and you know give advice because um, I think part of the film programming is that we should be mentors to help other people who want to go into programming um, and, yeah it's uh, not a zero-sum game here. yeah and I mean maybe some people don't share our view but I think it, it's important to do that and you know we have varying success with our potluck you know sometimes we have a lot of programmers come sometimes you know one or two come but um we continue to do it because we feel that it's important it's important that we should all we're all in it together and we're all doing the same thing at various levels mm -hmm. whether you're a programmer at the music box or just or a At Hume, like we, met, uh, this girl Emily does programming, field programming at Hume that just started this year, which is uh, our space in Logan Square. And, and uh, we invited her because we're like, hey. And she was like, why are you inviting me? I'm like, because you're doing film programming. So you should be part of this. Come to the potluck. So, yeah. yeah, come to the potluck and, you know, you can meet. And, it, and I feel like, in, especially these smaller series that programmers do, it's a way for them to know that, you know, that they're welcome and they're you know they're doing important stuff too whatever it is 
and you know they could ask for help from us and advice and whatever so uh we'll continue to do those potlucks at least in the near future now we've interviewed a lot of independent filmmakers and film programmers on this on this show before and a common thread that tom and i both have found between them is that this sort of all for one kind of mentality which you were talking a little bit about raul um, I did want to ask, do you think that something like Comfort Film in its current form could exist somewhere, could exist outside of Chicago, say in New York or, or Los Angeles? Wow. Uh, I, I I don't know. I mean, I, maybe. I mean, I, yeah. There's like very specific things that make Comfort Film uh, a thing in its own. Like, first of all, our location. You know, we are not the only series in Logan Square, uh, but we are, I think, one of the longest ones. We are in a we are in a historic building. We are in a gallery. We are uh, volunteer run. Um, we try to keep our programming every week for you know, like uh, ten months. So that's maybe like over forty eight weeks, maybe. Um, I don't know if anywhere else people would like have the um, the passion to like do it for that long. You know, oftentimes more than than once a a week. I mean, I sometimes see Raul like maybe three or four times on on a given week during the summer. Uh, we have tried to reach out to uh, a diverse community of filmmakers because the city is not just creating sort of like fiction or documentary or like uh, activism base uh, work. Um, I mean, I, I can't think, uh, because we also know people who live and work in LA. We know friends who are artists who work in New York. And so far, they haven't come across as saying something like, oh, this program that I was able to book here with you, I was able to like book elsewhere. So far, that hasn't happened. Um, there's micro cinemas that have a more business-based focus, so they have a whole structure that you know supports them financially. Um we just kind of like go by 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 the donations and by uh the will of uh, of ourselves and also the other people that work with us matthew and emily yeah. and other people that work with us such as you know chelsea and adrian um so i don't know i don't know if that's a thing where like other people are actually you know taking time for from their very already stressful week to go and program because it's not just you know showing the movie it's also kind of like the work that you have to do prior to that and showing up an hour before to set up and then you know maybe like an hour after breaking down so that's like four hours yeah it's almost like it's almost like a second job for us because there's a lot of like following up with filmmakers and setting up the the day and uh that's why i like to excuse me i like to program start programming way ahead of time that way we have stuff booked and we don't have to really worry about it too much Mm -hmm. the first year that we the second well the first year that we program a conversation the series looked totally different we're showing kind of like a lot of like more independent films with bigger budgets and uh, we're kind of flying under the radar as projection rights wise and then the next year we totally changed our programming so we showed we started focusing on showing more local filmmakers more stuff uh that was in like way independently made diy made and uh and a, a lot of other things so our program has changed since that first year and um, now I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> well, it's just growing and changing. Oh, it was well, yeah, it's yeah. growing and changing. I can't speak to other scenes in other cities because I've never been. Mm-hmm. Like I never checked out the, the cinemas in New York, like a micro cinemas or or in LA. Um, I know LA 
several people have told me that LA doesn't have this community based yeah. uh, like yeah, film it seems competitive. Network. I mean, there, there's something to it where like the first year we were showing films that you know uh, were films that have been released theatrically and or you know with a small limited run, but that we liked. Something like that perhaps does exist, where like an independent filmmaker or a small artist is invited to show a film that they like, you know, like a, a David Lynch film or mm -hmm. you know perhaps like a John Cassavetes film. Uh, and they get to do that in a space, but they don't get to program what their work and their friends' work. So perhaps there are micro cinemas or, or like cine clubs that show work that's been released before. But they, I don't know. Uh, again, I can't speak for other, but I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that what we're doing in going and reaching like um, filmmakers who studied uh, production and direction in Colombia or people who studied uh, kind of like more art-based uh, video installation at uh, ACIC or people who never had like a training but had had you know years of experience working behind music videos and web series like we're able to connect with all those people and that's why our program in, in a given month or two months you can see something that is like oh we're going to show experimental work from students from ACIC and we're also going to show a web series uh, that you know got a grant from Chicago Filmmakers uh, which we have done with uh, Amar, who also made it on the film 50. He brought and showed stuff from Open TV, which is uh, queer based uh, web content. Yeah, we love Open TV. We actually had, um, was it the uh, folks from Afternoon Snatch, one of the shows? Oh, okay, and I know, cool. Yeah. Yeah, and I know. Um, with Amar and Open TV, they just had they had Brown Girls picked up, yeah, and Brown Girls, did. I believe, won a Webby as well for one did, for yeah. best uh, streaming. Yeah, we, we had Amar. What he did was he brought. Um, stuff that Open TV wasn't producing, but they were kind of supporting. Mm -hmm. So we showed that and uh, with AMR, and um, we're hoping we could do more stuff with Open TV because I think that's a very important project that's really gotten taken off the past year. But I mean, that's kind of stuff that we kind of do a conversation. We're, we're very broad based. We 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 talk to a lot of people doing different things everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean. Not to say, but, you know, if you can show me another space that is showing a film from the 80s on VHS on the same month that they're going to show the ethnographic uh, works of, of um, black and brown filmmakers, and at the same time they're going to host a film festival that it's all female filmmakers, I'd like to see that because right now I don't think that there is one that is that eclectic. Extremely unique. Um, so what is what is next for comfort station and comfort film where do you guys see yourselves in about a year uh well um i know we just recently turned into a non-profit so comfort station itself is now its own non-profit and i and I know we were looking to get grants because we have a lot of work body of work behind us five years worth mm -hmm. so we're hoping that we get some some grants for next year and hopefully that would help and you know we we have a kind of a small budget this year for getting projection rights, which we really didn't have to dip in that much. But I think for next year, I think we want to improve. Uh, mostly, you know, we'll have some money, more money to get projection rights for stuff. And then hopefully uh, we can get some better, you know, um, upgrade our equip projection equipment. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, yeah, and then, you know, bring in as much, you know, eclectic stuff as we can, you know, to show at Cover Station, which I'm – now starting in the process of trying to set up yeah. for next year. I mean, there's there's a few things that we try like uh, uh, a year, and then if they succeed, you know, either either because the filmmaker brings a really good program or because the audience likes it, we we do it. That's why the uh, silent film with. Uh, 
with live music we've done you know five years now mm-hmm. something that we did two years ago and that we did this year which we want to do is dedicate a whole month to projecting celluloid so that's that's kind of like an experimental side of it mm-hmm. uh, we hosted a filmmaker named Irving Gamboa who had a whole night for just showing his work and that's something that we that came up from a different thing, but we focus specifically in showing 16 and Super 8 film. And I think that's another thing that we want to do next year. And, you know, perhaps uh, given that we have the budget, because uh, that's kind of like film, we have our own projector. Uh, but, you know, we also like to f- be able to, like, uh, fly people from other places. Mm-hmm. And, a- again, just like Roel was saying, be able to, like, you know, make their trip worthwhile. So yeah. Program with other people. Yeah, because last year we had uh, Ulises Guzman, who we flew in, who came from Mexico. And he's like a horror film director in Mexico, um, and we show some of his stuff and one of his uh, yeah. one of his projects, and we had money enough to pay you know help him come over. Right, and we had to write a lot of a recommendation um, that he could show to the government there, saying, "Hey, I'm going to go for a you know a cultural project in Chicago." So that's more that's more stuff that we want to do, and you know we want to we focus more this year and more previous and in the past. Uh, uh, we've done more Latin-based films, right? And cover station, and that was something that uh, our 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 general programmer or artistic our, director, our artistic director Jordan Martins, who's Brazilian, he's been ta- you know in the past he's been saying you guys should show more like Latin-based films. So we've done that more yeah. this year than previous years, and we'll probably expand that next year too, um, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, Raul and I being some of the two of the few Latino filmmakers in the city, it's something that you know we want. Well, to film do. programmers in the film city, programmers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this year we got, we teamed up with the Latino Film Festival for the first time ever. Um, something that we've been trying to do over the years, and we finally broke through. Um, and you know, we teamed up with them to show up a, a screening before their festival. So hopefully, we're, we can do that more next year. Um, so lots to come, hopefully, next for next year. Fantastic stuff. Uh, coming up this Wednesday, it's going to be part of your Halloween series, Halloween at Comfort Film, Project Nightmare from 1987. And that one is uh, is that's sponsored by Daily Grindhouse. Um, get on out there. It's it's at Comfort Station. It's that little house at uh, right off Milwaukee. Yeah. Right off of Milwaukee. Uh, if you want to find anything about Comfort Station, the events that's going on, not just Comfort Film, but everything about Comfort Station, you can head on over to ComfortStationLoganSquare.org. Uh, that's where they have the list for everything coming up with Comfort Film. You guys are also on Facebook, Comfort Station, Logan Square, and also Comfort Film. Um, and check out that New City Film 50. They're they're on there. It's a great, great to see... Um, Two hardworking people in the film community in Chicago getting recognized. So, uh, Raul Benitez and Nando Espinoza, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank, thank, thank you for having yeah. us. All right. Sweet. We're going to be back in just a little bit here on No Coast Cinema. We're going to be talking a little bit about Blade Runner 2049 and the Rotten Tomatoes effect. Stick around. everybody noco cinema tom hush connor, connor cornelius. cornelius am oh. i hearing an echo in here echo in here echo in here echo in here equine equine hair 
back on Noco's Cinema, uh, your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago and all around the world. Uh, going to be moving into our after credits where we want to talk a little bit of business here, uh, specifically the box office. Normally we would do this in our news segment, but we had bigger fish to fry, frankly. Nice. So the long-awaited sequel to Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049, 35 years in the making, has finally dropped. And uh, it's been a little bit rough. Um, open to a fairly poor $13 million on Friday, which sounds like a lot of money. But when that's going against a $155 million budget, that is not what they were looking for. Uh, this is coming to us from Forbes.com. Writer Scott Mendelson letting us know that, yeah, $13 million was the debut. Um, he's saying at best, he thinks this movie will tie Alien Covenant's $36 million debut for the weekend. So it's still early days. Um the marketing for this movie has been pretty intense, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Beautiful trailers showing off the visual scope of the film, which is, if you've read any of the reviews, has been one of the largest uh, probably boons for the movie. Mm-hmm. And also one of the largest uh, boons to Denis Villeneuve's sort of mythos or ethos that he's created with his film career. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting because... In, inside the film buff community, this has been like an event. Um, this movie is getting rave reviews. Yeah. Rave reviews. Um, Near unanimous positive reception. Absolutely. Mark Kermode of the BBC said this film made him weep. Now, maybe it's a little bit uh, much, but hey, you know what? I'm not going to tell people how they reacted to a film. There have just been unanimous praise for Blade Runner 2049. However, it has not turned into any sort of like massive success at this point. At this point. It's early days. We are recording this on Saturday, uh, October 7th. So the weekend's not over. Who knows how it's going to do tonight, this Saturday? Who knows how it's going to do Sunday? Um one Monday when this episode is released, it might be a completely different story. However, it is something to look at when it comes to the much uh, debated Rotten Tomatoes effect. Now, Brett Ratner, the director of such rave films as Rush Hour, <laughs> Rush Hour 2, Rush, Rush Hour 3, 3. And Rush Hour 4. Is that happening? It just got announced. Exclusive. Anyway, (laughs) Brett Ratner uh, always kind of, he has this beef with Rotten Tomatoes, and he he previously kind of blamed the dip in, uh, in movie revenue on this Rotten Tomatoes effect is people go to Rotten Tomatoes, they want to see if a movie's good, and... See that uh, little green... Icon next to the movie, and they're like, "Oh, not going to go spend twelve to fifteen dollars on that." Yeah, which, frankly, I don't blame them. I I will say this: I use Rotten Tomatoes to kind of get the sense of a feeling for a film, see what people are saying. I mainly go to it because it has the film reviews there. Like you can go scroll down and see the critics and read specific critics, and it kind of aggregates them into that one place, which I find incredibly useful. Are you a Rotten Tomatoes? Absolutely, yes. I do try to mix it up. You know, I like to use. um, I do like to use like IMDb and like media cr- or uh, what is that called? Metacritic. Metacritic. I yeah. try to use those because I think that in certain cases they're a little bit harder on films, you know, across the board. But I do use Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, Rotten Tomatoes is a good resource, and maybe people are putting a little bit too much stock into uh, how much a. a a tomato meter rating is going to tell them what if they're going to like a movie. It's a dipstick test. It's just giving you a sense of how much oil 
is in there. If do you need to change the oil? <laughs> and then oil is in this metaphor in terms of quality. <laughs> you got to get that uh, that get synthetic it. shit. Mm, replicants. Um, anyway, <laughs> anyway, leaving this extended metaphor behind, <laughs> it was a um, good one. I enjoyed it. Yeah, he he does make uh, some pretty interesting points in this in this article and i'm glad that mr mendelson does because it's worth talking about the fact that the original blade runner while now is a classic and considered a standard of the genre 35 years ago it did not do super it wasn't like a big success it earned 27 million on a 28 million dollar budget and that was in 1982 that's a domestic that he's considering that a flop yes although i think there are bigger flops than that but uh you know, there's a there is this sense of, you know, are people going to come out and see a two and a half plus hour R rated sci fi drama that many people do not have any sort of context for? A lot of folks who I've spoken to are saying like, oh shit, I have to go watch the original Blade Runner because I've never seen it. Right. Despite being this kind of cultural thing, they've never seen it. And a lot of the hype surrounding this is from people who have seen it, love the movie, because I actually watched it last night. It's beautiful, kind of even like almost like a little bit of a sleepy, surreal film. And if you're not familiar with the original or just haven't seen it in a long time, Maybe you're not really getting plugged into this hype that has been. Ju- it's a little bit of a bubble effect, maybe. Yeah, I, I like. Yeah, a bubble effect of people who are really into the movie, just like, just fawning over it. Yeah. I mean, it's Blade Runner, you know. But then but, on the other end, you've just got a whole mass of people who are just like, I don't really give a shit. Yeah, I think I think the way that he. Um, the way that he frames it here is is pretty interesting. He's he's saying that like if if you're just a regular, you know, person, maybe you got kids or something, he's putting it as like <laughs> would you get a babysitter for this movie? Oh yeah, yeah. And I like he puts it as if this were a 120 minute PG or PG-13 movie that could justify a family night or a Saturday matinee with the kids, that would be a different story. But as we saw with Scream 4 back in 2011, there is a difference between I'm interested and I will pay for a babysitter and related expenses to go see that R-rated sequel in theaters, which <laughs> is why he doesn't feel optimistic about the legs of this film how far it's going to go um it ju- it does make me sad though because it, it, maybe it points to this idea that people are, don't want to go see a movie that might challenge expectations and it sounds a little i i will admit that sounds a little elitist we're talking about a relatively niche product right here. it's a heavy genre film people are looking at it and they're just saying you know I'm going to go see whatever else is. I'm going to go see, you know, Gretchen goes, well, I'll just go see like a lighthearted comedy or yeah. something, you know? And I don't blame them because, you know, it takes effort to sit through a movie like this. Now, I will say at this point, Connor and I have not seen Blade Runner 2049. We are fans of the original property, but we have not seen it. But uh, it seems to be a neat, it's a niche movie. Yeah. At the end of the day, that, that, at the end, that uh, Warner Brothers wanted to be. A Mad Max, which was also which is weird because Mad Max Fury Road was a crossover hit. 
Right. That really made a lot of money. It got so much attention. But it was also promising to be an action film. Whereas Precisely. if you've seen the original Blade Runner, it's a lot of psychological tension building up. It's noir. It's very noir. There's a lot of um, themes that you just sort of get to swim through, and it's a beautiful movie. And it is a great film-going experience, but it's not the uh, two-hour nonstop car chase that Mad Max was. Fury Road, I mean. Right. Yeah. Because, yeah, you know, you make a really good point there, Connor. It's... um. And there were people that actually really disliked, they really went against the hype for Mad Max. Now, I loved Mad Max Fury Road. I thought it was a huge revitalization of the action genre and the return of a fantastic director and taking it in a subversive direction. But there were some people who were just like, I just watched a fucking two-hour car chase. And I totally agree with that. But well, at the end, it is, yeah. Yeah. I think that's the genius of the movie, but that's just like my opinion, man. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. It's... Uh, I can see why they wouldn't like it, but at the end of the day, it was a crossover hit. But you can't adapt Blade Runner. Like, you can't expect Blade Runner in all its heavy sci fi imagery and weightiness to be a crossover hit. I even, you got, I know you have Ryan Gosling, I know you have Jared Leto, Robin Wright. Uh, Dave Batista, you've got big name. Harrison Ford is back, but I think in the article that the Scott Me- that Scott Mendelson wrote, I do think that he even mentions like uh, Ryan Gosling is not an opener. Um, I guess not. Harrison well, Ford hasn't been an opener since What Lies Beneath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Six days, seven nights is a masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. You want to go? You want to fucking go, <laughs> yeah. motherfucker? <laughs> Let's talk about Harrison Ford with his shirt off. Uh, no, but you're, but you're right. Well, not even with the Force Awakens. You know, he came back, in, but maybe that was just the nostalgia well ran dry for him. It does seem like a weird property to come back. I feel like, you know, and the reviews are saying like this, you know, Denis Villeneuve does great things with the property and it makes me excited. But at the same time, like, could we have done without a Blade Runner sequel? Like, probably. Probably. I guess. Uh, I'm glad that it's there. I mean, I, I feel like I'm going to enjoy it. I loved Blade Runner, the first yeah. one. I've seen it a bunch of times. But that shit's not for everybody. Like, no. there are some people, and I, t- I talk with a lot of my friends frequently about film, and I was just like, oh, you guys hyped for Blade Runner 2049? Pr- prior to the reviews coming out, they were just like, fuck no. Why would I want to watch this? The original is boring as hell. Yeah. And I'm just like, what do you mean it's boring? And again, film elitist side coming out here. Uh, I just, I just really love the original Blade Runner, and um, I just, I watched it last night with my roommates, and we were all just sort of, even though we're not all, I, I'm maybe more of a film elitist to use that terminology than my roommates, but they all were saying this movie is beautiful, and it was shot in the in the early eighties, eight nineteen eighty two. Yeah, I mean, it's impossible, I think, to not be able to acknowledge how much of a triumph that film is and maybe that's the problem is that we are we are trying to exchange this kind of cultural currency for financial success and that doesn't necessarily work yeah it doesn't add up you can't yeah as you said how many people can you get to realistically sit down damn you can barely get people to sit down and watch a 90 minute movie without pulling their phones out you know, how do you expect people to sit through a two and a half hour plus it's two hours and 45 minutes? It's two hours, almost three hours, almost three hours. People don't people just don't do that anymore. It, you you'd be hard pressed to get someone to sit down to watch a much more relevant piece of pop culture like the Lord of the Rings extended editions. 
you might have a hard time with that now. And there are people who religiously watch the Lord of the Rings and like I know for me personally, I only watch the extended editions. Yeah, same. But um and I, I, I don't really blame Yeah. <laughs> I don't blame people for being like, that is too long for me to just be sitting there. Like, and it must have to be, it has to have a much bigger appeal. You really got to hook people if you're going to have them sit down for almost three hours and watch a movie. Yeah. So, and I want to get back to this idea of the Rotten Tomatoes effect. And I'm going to say to you, Brett Ratner, don't get me wrong. I love Rush Hour 1 and 2. 3 wasn't great, but Rush Hour 1 and 2 were pretty fun for me. Um, (laughs) Dude. It doesn't add up. The Rotten Tomatoes, it's not a one-to-one ratio. I think that they are completely overplaying the effect of the Rotten Tomatoes tomato meter. If it's, when it comes to bad movies, make better movies. Right. When it comes to great movies, it's not not a one-to-one ratio. No, people are still not going to go, obviously, people are not going to go see a movie, even if it is at the 90%, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever, which pretty much means it's a good movie yeah and uh at least among critic circles there is something to be said that there is a bit of a hive mind when it comes to critics though uh no one it's it's there is definitely an incentive not to be caught as the odd one out hating a movie you don't want to be that person um you know i know sometimes there's pressure for me i get pressure for hating on a movie like i have a lot of friends that really enjoyed interstellar freaking hate interstellar that's <laughs> Frick, one of you one freaking of my, hate it i freaking hate it lady you, you don't like forrest gump either no i hate forrest gump i've said that hell i've said that live on air on wg and i've been like <laughs> let's talk about how bad forrest gump is and how overrated it is um because then you get pegged as uh as a contrarian sure and, or an elitist. Or an elitist, which sucks. Because, honestly, if there's someone out there... And, and the sad part is is that in the case of Blade Runner 2049, you'll be pegged as stupid. Which, that's totally not fair. Like, if, you don't, if you're not a fan of Blade Runner 2049, stake that claim. If you're not a fan of the original Blade Runner, stake that claim. And don't be afraid to say, I just didn't like this movie. You don't need to be collecting this cultural capital so that people think that you're some sort of like genius when it comes to movies. You don't have to love all the classics. Um, just, the, again, I, just to reiterate, the Rotten Tomatoes thing is not one-to-one. Just because you got a poor tomato, poor tomato score doesn't mean you're not going to make a hell of a lot of money. And just because you got a high tomato score doesn't mean you're suddenly going to be like... Uh, rocketed um, yeah. to the number one box office absolutely absolutely any closing thoughts connor <laughs> <laughs> see that feels good that feels that good. feels good after uh sort of a heavy some heavy things some heavy things absolutely all right guys thank you so much for listening to the show uh we're going to be back with you again next week connor it's always a pleasure Thanks, babe. Um, next time, maybe we should find a movie that we can. We find a movie that both that we disagree on. Let's do some next homework. time. Next time on Noco Cinema, <laughs> movies that they disagree. On. <laughs> Am I hearing a new theme? I think so. Head on over to uh, WGN Radio. That's where you can find all of our episodes. It's under the WGN Plus tab. Just click on WGN Plus Entertainment and find Noco Cinema. If you miss an episode, it's all there. And uh, if you use Apple Podcasts. 
Head on over to Apple Podcasts. We're on iTunes. Yeah, iTunes. Just subscribe. Give us a rating. Uh, it helps people find the show and helps us get more of our uh, our interviews out there. We want everybody to be hearing about what's happening here in Chicago because it's such a great film community. It's such a great city. Help us by giving us a subscription and also giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Um, if you want to keep up with us, we're we're doing this whole 31 days of uh, horror films for October. We've got a, we've each got lists. They're going to be up on the Facebook. Um, check out what we're watching there. Uh, you can follow us at No Coast Cinema Podcast. That's on Facebook. So facebook.com slash No Coast Cinema Podcast. We're on Twitter as at No Coast Cinema. And um, you can find, I know you can find me on Instagram at Mount Hushmore. Uh, where can people follow you, Connor? Uh, you can find me on Instagram as Surly Nurbler. And it's spelled just like it sound, like it sounds. My mother's maiden name. And uh, on Twitter as Chint Gargans. These I yeah. It's see. worth saying that I have to say this because Connor and I go back. We went to high school together. These are some deep references. <laughs> These are some truly esoteric references. These are just some characters that I've created over the years. And it's just absolutely. All right, we'll see you guys next week. This has been No Coast Cinema. Bye-bye, Connor. Bye, Tom.